Welcome to International and NWA. I'm your host, Audra Johnston. Thanks for joining us today for an extra special double episode in which we'll be discussing the importance of maintaining good immigration records. Without further ado, let's go. Today we have a very special guest on International and NWA. Adam Cohen is an attorney with the immigration law firm of Siskin Susser PC, located in Memphis, Tennessee, where he exclusively practices immigration and nationality law. Adam focuses his practice on the immigration of physicians, researchers, faculty, students, nurses, and other allied health professionals. And he represents universities, academic medical centers, healthcare systems, hospitals, and private practices, as well as individual students, scholars, and healthcare professionals. Adam is an active member and leader in professional organizations such as the International Medical Graduate Task Force, NAFSA, the Association of International Educators, and the American Immigration Lawyers Association. In addition, Adam is the content creator for VisaLaw.ai's STEM OPT Assistant, a resource designed to help students and their employers assess STEM OPT eligibility, generate a training plan, and understand compliance obligations. Adam is also a writer who has been quoted and or published by a variety of publications. And most recently, he's the author of a new reference guide titled The Academic Immigration Handbook. We've had the pleasure of welcoming him to the University of Arkansas for seminars, and I have been fortunate to present with him at conferences. So please join me in welcoming a friend of the podcast, Mr. Adam Cohen. Thank you so much, Audra. I really appreciate the invitation. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I don't think I've been on a podcast interview before, so, uh, so I'm, I'm very excited. Well, we will be very honored to be the first podcast interview for you. So we're, we're glad you're with us today. And so today we wanted to talk about the importance of maintaining uh, one's immigration documents. Uh, but before we get into why that's important and how to do it, Let's talk a little bit about what we mean by immigration documents. So what kinds of documents are those exactly? Certainly. Um, so there are a variety of different uh, immigration documents. I'm going to just throw out a number of, of the most important ones, Audra. So the first ones are, of course, you know, most students and exchange visitors will be familiar with an I-20 document uh, for in the F-1 context that governs um, one's one's uh, program of study in the U.S. and and also the for those J ones uh, the DS twenty nineteen which basically governs the exchange visitor program within the U.S. Mm -hmm. and these are used in combination with the form I ninety four to reflect one's status. It's basically a statement of status in the country. Right, the I ninety four is an arrival departure record. And it will list it will list duration of stay, duration of status uh, for for F1 and uh, J1 uh, uh, holders, and it will list a date certain for most other non-immigrant statuses, like a particular date of of expiration. So mm -hmm. for F and J, you want to look at the I-20 for F uh, with the I-94 for J, the DS-2019 with the form I-94. That uh, that governs status. The other thing I'll, I'll note uh, 
you know, just referencing the, the I-94, when somebody comes into a port of entry, they will receive an admission stamp in their passport. It's like a little oval, oval-shaped stamp, and it lists uh, the category, the date of entry, and typically lists the expiration as well. So I've mm-hmm. seen sometimes that's left off and can, and can cause some problems. You always want to make sure that you're checking the stamp before you leave the port of entry. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and we'll talk more about that. And, and also there are paper I-94s, uh, that are often received at the land borders. So, um, you know, the, not, not for those who are coming through an airport or a seaport, they don't receive the paper I-94. Um, also very important to pull your I-94, which is kept electronically. Um, you want to do this as soon as possible after you enter the U.S., uh, it can take a few days for that information to show up or, or a little bit of time for the information to show up. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a website I can provide, but I also just tell people to Google, you know, CBP I-94, and that will take them to the i94.cbp.dhs.gov address where, you know, you can pull your most recent I-94, you can pull your, your travel history as well. If this information is, is incorrect, you also, uh, you know, you, the, the student, the exchange visitor, the somebody who is in a non-immigrant status, you may need to pull um, or need to obtain a 994 correction mm-hmm. from the, the port of entry, which could be, you know, from either from the port of entry or could be a local CBP office later down the road. Um, a lot of these offices um, have correction emails my understanding most recently is that they are rolling out a centralized system through CBP to hmm. assist with, with I-94 corrections. Um, the last thing I'll say about the I-94 for now is that you know, you'll also not have um, online access to the I-94 for a previous entry once you have traveled again. So everyone needs to be aware of that. It's helpful to save you know, just a history of I-94s if at all possible. Okay. Yes. Um, I have a few more things to add on to that. Um, so there's the passport mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, for the home country. And one would typically have a valid F1, J1, H1B, you know, non-immigrant visa uh, in that passport, unless they are visa exempt in that particular category, like Canadian nationals who are visa exempt in most categories. You typically want to have about six months of validity remaining on the passport. Um, and if you have a valid visa in the old passport that is expired and you have a new passport, you can typically travel with both, you hmm. know, with the new passport and the old passport with the valid, with the valid visa. And um, this kind of, I think, is helpful to Audra for us to just briefly note, what's the difference between a visa and a status? Yes. Uh, because I know that that can cause um, a lot of confusion. Sometimes people even call them visa statuses, which makes right, it more right. confusing, right? So you have a visa in your passport, a visa foil. It kind of takes up a page of the passport. And that is sort of a ticket to enter the U.S. in a sense. It's a ticket for admission it really doesn't have much force or impact when one is already present in the US. It's something that is needed for for travel. A status is the particular status one holds while they're in the US as dictated by the I-94, you know, and also by the I-20 and uh, DS-2019 if if applicable. 
Um, you know, the only other things I would mention here are there's an there are I-797 documents mm -hmm. that people can be confused about sometimes because there's I-797As and Bs and Cs. And mm. um, the I-797As are approval notices. Like, let's take, for example, an H-1B. I-797A is your H-1B petition approval with your I-94 at the bottom of it. Uh -huh. An I-797B is somebody who just has that petition approval, but they do not have an I-94 at the bottom of it. They have something called a consular receipt, uh, I guess colloquially known, that you can use to help you obtain your visa at the embassy or consulate uh, and to come through uh, CBP, you know, through the port of entry as well. Um, I-797Cs are receipt notices. You have your employment authorization documents uh, that you can acquire through certain non-immigrant statuses like J2s, for example, can apply for general work authorization. A lot of people will also get them through pending green card processes. Mm -hmm. And uh, those are, they look like driver's licenses. Um, and they're also about the si same size as a green card too. Um, and sometimes they will also have advanced parole travel authorization, it'll say serves as I-512 advanced parole at the bottom if it has travel authorization. Otherwise, there are separate advanced parole travel documents as well that um, are issued uh, sort of as an eight and a half by 11 uh, approval notice, uh, essentially, advanced parole notice. Uh, and then the last two are you know, social that I can think of anyway. Social security cards are sort of uh, in in the immigration world. Uh, okay. They have many other purposes for for ability to work in the U.S. And finally, just keeping copies of petitions and applications that have been filed by employers, mm -hmm. attorneys, uh, universities, etc. Okay. Wow. So that's quite an assortment of documents to keep. Okay. And, you know, one of the documents that you mentioned was a passport and you said it, you know, it should generally be valid six months into the future. And, you know, a passport, basically everyone needs one of those to enter the U.S. Um, so I'm wondering, does your passport have to be valid all the time that you're in the U.S.? And if it does expire while you're here, are there problems you might face because of that? Yeah. So that's a great question. Um, that's, that's a great question, Andre. So, you know, I would say best practice is to maintain that passport, you know, that, that home country passport. Um, and, um, you know, typically having about six months of validity on that is, is helpful, but I'll, I'll mention more about that. Um, and, you know, it's best practice for a variety of reasons. It's best practice for applying for an extension of status uh, within the U.S., in fact, there's a there's a regulation about that. Like if you're changing status or you're extending your status in the U.S., that you're you're supposed to have a passport that is valid at the time of the application, and that you also are agreeing to maintain the validity of your passport and abide by the terms and conditions of the extension. You know, so that's a that's mm -hmm. a federal regulation, and that's why it's it's really helpful to to have it. Um, and um, you know, I, I when I think of passport validity, I'm thinking of it more. Um, according to certain touch points, right, where you would really need it. So mm -hmm. extensions of status, changes status, um, you know, uh, applying for work authorization, 
applying for a social security card, sometimes showing right. um, uh, employment uh, verification, employment eligibility verification. There's mm -hmm. a, a list of documents, um, you know, various lists of, of documents that could be provided to show employment authorization, but you know, having a passport is is one way to to show one's identity. So mm -hmm. there's those touch points, and then especially the touch points of I'm planning to depart from the U.S. and board, uh, you know, an international aircraft, mm -hmm. uh, or I'm trying to get into another country, or I'm trying to return to the U.S. Right, and so those are those are the big issues. Um, so let me just I'll paint this picture that I think could be a little bit helpful. Um, you know, because there were situations that happened, of course, during the pandemic and, mm -hmm. and other things that can happen where somebody is basically stuck in the U.S. because they have an expired passport mm -hmm. and they can't renew it stateside. A lot of countries do allow for that renewal. When I say stateside, I mean within the U.S. while one right. is present here. Uh, but, you know, during the, the pandemic, there were closures um, or or great deal of delay in passport renewals. And also most recently, um, you know, I've seen the situation of the foreign service with Israel that there are some strikes ongoing. Mm. And so there are individuals who are, you know, concerned about the ability they typically have to renew their passport while in the US being disturbed, right? Because mm -hmm. of issues that are happening at um, embassies and, and consulates, Israeli embassies and consulates within the US. So, you know, one could find themselves essentially stuck in the U.S. without the ability to, you know, board uh, an international flight, uh, mm -hmm. to enter the home country, even to return to the U.S. And of course, as I mentioned, it also uh, impacts the ability to um, apply for certain benefit applications uh, in the U.S. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I'll, I'll note about that is, you know, visitors traveling to the U.S., they're, they're basically required to be in possession of a passport that is valid for six months beyond the period of their intended stay mm -hmm. uh, in the U.S. And there are some countries that are exempt from that six-month rule. I think they're sort of informally referred to as part of the six-month club. Right, I've seen determined. that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, as I don't know why they call it that. Um, as determined by the Customs and Border Protection. And so they only, those exempt countries only need to have a passport that's valid, you know, for their intended period of stay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So very important to keep an eye on when your passport expires, it sounds like. So I wanted to revisit just for a few moments the I-94 because you had quite a bit to say about the I-94. It seems to be very important. And in fact, um, I notice uh, whenever I get an email from you, I notice there's a reminder in your email signature about checking I-94s. So why should I be checking my I-94? Why is it so important? Should I keep every I-94 that I'm ever issued? Yeah, so I, well, I appreciate first off, Audra, the nod to to uh, the the disclaimer in my in my emails. Um, I hope that my clients are are as have a, as finely in a you know attuned eye that you have <laughs> to uh, to noticing those things um, because it is it's 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 extremely important. And what I'm mm. you know what I'm pointing out in that disclaimer is to check your visa category, to check your expiration date. Um, and to print out your I-94 for your records, right? You want to look mm -hmm. at your admission stamp in your passport. 
And you want to pull that electronic record as soon as possible to make sure that there were no mistakes uh, that were made by CBP. Because think about it in, in terms of, you know, when you get through, uh, let's say you're in a busy airport, several international flights have all come in at the same time. You are standing in line, you're waiting for uh, basically primary inspection uh, to occur where the officer is processing individuals. They have maybe a couple minutes to do so. So it is not surprising that mistakes could, could potentially be made. Right. Um, the I-94 is, as I mentioned before, it is the statement of your status while you are in the U.S. Um, it doesn't matter you know, when you are outside of the U.S., but when you return, it dictates your status in the U.S. You can receive an I-94 from Customs and Border Protection or from U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services. And the last I-94, I'll emphasize, the last I-94 is what governs one's status in the U.S. And that is why it must be checked every time, you know, someone uh, receives, receives the I-94, whether it's coming from CBP or USCIS. But especially true with CBP because, um, you know, you don't necessarily see that record right away. And, mm. it's, it, and it can be even more difficult to correct than with USCIS. Right. So painting a picture to make this a little bit more concrete. So let's say University of Arkansas files uh, an H-1B petition for someone. Um, and you know the petition is valid until July 1st, 2023. Okay, sounds mm -hmm. good. It's, you get the uh, um, I-797A, uh, the petition approval, it has an I-94 attached. Um, and uh, that I-94 is also valid until July 1st, 2023. Now somebody travels, and, and I'll put a little passport overlay in here. Let's mm -hmm. say that person's passport is expiring on December 1st of this year, okay? Mm -hmm. They come through CBP uh, with you know, their valid visa. They have their petition approval till July 1st, 23. Mm -hmm. They have a passport you know, that is expiring this December. And the CBP officer gives them until December 1st, 2022, okay, which is mm. actually common. They, they will often limit the validity of the status to the passport, right? Unless we're talking about F and J where it's, you know, where it's, it's D slash S, right. a duration of, of status. So, you know, I've seen people who have not checked their I-94 record or send it to their attorney or inform their school about it. And it comes time, you know, July 1st, 2023, you know, a few months before that, that um, the discussion of the extension of the H-1B status is being discussed. And it comes to the attention of those filing this petition that, um, you know, that individual is out of status mm. because they were not aware, you know, of what status they were given or the, or the expiration date, I should say, right. by CBP. Yeah. They started talking about it when it was already too late. And um, that the last action rule governs that the CBP I-94 was the last I-94 to be received. And that is the dictate of the, of the status. And it's a really scary scenario. It's a very scary yeah. scenario because you, know, you could have somebody who's been out of status for a long time. I've seen people be out of status you know, for a year, two years maybe, and then you start running into these unlawful presence bars. Mm. After you've been out of status for six months, you know, you leave, you could have a three-year bar to re-entry. You've been out of status for a year, 
or more, you depart the US, you know, try to come back, you know, that, that could be a 10 year bar. And then you need to apply for certain non-immigrant waivers or, you know, in the green card context, there are even more difficult uh, immigrant waivers, but it's, mm -hmm. it's very discretionary. So that's yeah. why I can't emphasize enough. And I appreciate the question, Audra, about these I-94s, uh, the, the need to check. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's not a bad idea, by the way, to retain every I-94 that you receive. Um, CBP, again, doesn't keep those I-94s. It's only the last one. Uh, they do have a travel history, but sometimes the travel history is inaccurate. Right. So it's helpful to keep all of those. I don't know that it's essential, but I would recommend it, you know, okay. to keep those, those I-94s. Um, and, uh, you know, you'll naturally have some of them already that are part of changes of status and extensions in the U.S., you know, as long as you're mm -hmm. keeping your, uh, your, your petition approvals um, from USCIS. Right. Okay. Wow. So very important that, that really helps us. It helps me put some, you know, kind of wrap my head around why that I-94 is so important. So let's back it up a little bit and just, and look at it in the overall picture and the big picture of things. Why is it important to keep my immigration documents? I mean, why would, why would I need my old, like F1, I-20s, and all my old immigration documents, say, five or 10 years from now in the future. Why is that important? Absolutely. Well, I'll throw out a couple of my ideas about that, Audrey, and you may have some other ones too, but you know, there's, there's a variety of reasons that these things are necessary. Um, and, and I'll emphasize again, you, know, you want to keep copies or scans of all, the, all these previous immigration documents, everything you just mentioned, Audrey. You know, and including you know passports and visa stamps and, and prior uh, work authorization, all of that. And the most common reason to have them is to show that you have maintained lawful status hmm. during your entire stay in the U.S. It's it's particularly important too. You know, think about somebody who entered, let's say, in two thousand and seven. You know, they last came in in two thousand and seven. They haven't left since then. Well, they're needing to show for purposes of their non-immigrant status, um, for purposes of their green card process, especially maintenance of lawful status during that entire period. Okay, mm -hmm. so they want to maintain those, you know, they may have moved from a few different statuses. Maybe they went from F1 to H1B, maybe they had J1 in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. So um, it's very important for that maintenance. The other thing I, I do a lot of work with, J1 waivers. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, the DS 2019s are, it's so important to maintain a record of those because when you apply for a waiver, the government wants to see every single DS 2019 right. when, you, when you do the waiver application. And sometimes it can be very hard to, to track these down. The sponsor may no, may no longer have even you know, retained them. Mm -hmm. And um, people don't always apply for waivers right after they're done with their J time. You know, there, right. there are a variety of statuses that one can hold uh, after the J-1 without having ever done the waiver, right? Like mm -hmm. they may come back as a student, um, you know, they may have come back in an O-1 uh, extraordinary ability status. Um, so it, it can be, it, it could be a decade or more, you know, since that person was in that J-1 program. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be very hard to find it. I, I've seen issues right. with it being difficult to get from the university or from the other sponsor. So um, it, it is very important to retain that documentation. Also for, for people who 
have nearly exhausted their six years of H-1B time. You know, if they're trying to recapture H-1B time, they're going to need to have a record of, you know, all of the petitions, the H-1B petitions that mm. they've had uh, to help, to aid in calculating uh, what time they have left uh, in right. age. And, uh, you know, prior work authorization cards are all, you know, USCIS requires them when you are applying for uh, a work authorization application in I-765. They want to see all prior EADs. So those are just sort of my, my initial thoughts top of mind on that, Audrey. Yeah. Okay. Well, so aside from the standard immigration documents we've discussed, and there are many, but aside from those, are there other types of documents like legal documents, financial documents that people should keep that might have a bearing on future immigration benefits? Sure. So, and this one is probably even a longer list, Audra. Um mm. Of, of possibilities. And it really, you know, every type of benefit application, you know, has different requirements, right? And, and those requirements are not always related to one's immigration status. Hmm. You know, they could be related to one's, uh, you know, marriage, finances, um, career, you know, types of documentation, criminal documentation, you know, a past, a past criminal record, criminal uh -huh. history. So um, let me throw out a few of them. Pay stubs to show one's maintenance of status. You hmm. have to have current pay stubs um, to be able to show that you are maintaining your status, particularly in like these work authorized statuses, like an H-1B, for example. Right. You, uh, if you're changing, let's say you're changing to an F-1 status or a J-1 status, you need to have financial documents to show you know, your ability to support yourself. The career documents like offer letters, Mm. Um, W-2s, employment verification letters, um, these show your positions held, dates, you know, they're relevant for um, J-1 waivers to show that you've, if it's like a Conrad waiver for a physician, to show that you have completed your three-year obligation in an underserved area, um, you need that record. Mm -hmm. You need it oftentimes for green card processes and non-immigrant processes, like, you know, let's say, um, the position requires two years of work experience um, with certain skills. You know, you want to have letters from your employer that indicate that when you worked and that you had those particular skills. Mm -hmm. W-2s, by the way, can also show an employer's ability to pay your salary. So oh. that, that's very important to have, right? So let's say you have an employer-sponsored process um, and maybe it's a startup company. You know, maybe their finances have had some issues given the pandemic. You know, they, are, they don't have strong net income. They don't have strong net assets. Another way to prove um, the employer's ability to pay is a record that they have paid you uh, mm -hmm. under that green card wage. And so having the W-2s uh, can be helpful there. Health insurance documents to show compliance with... Um, you know, with, with one's J-1 uh, mm. status, uh, taxes or taxes or tax transcripts for affidavits of, of support in family-based green card uh, cases, right? So you have a petitioning, let's say, petitioning U.S. citizen for um, a foreign national. They have to show that they can maintain that uh, the, the foreign national at 125% of the federal poverty guidelines. 
facts. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways they do that is through an affidavit of support with uh, proof from one's tax returns, tax transcripts. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, speaking of family-based cases, marriage certificates, mm -hmm. also divorce mm -hmm. decrees of, of, any, of any prior marriage, right? So they can show mm -hmm. that that marriage was legally terminated, that freed that individual to be able to marry somebody else, right? right? Um, let's see, um, criminal documentation, police reports, court records, that is extremely important to see. Even if it's been expunged, quote unquote? Absolutely, Audra. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just going there myself too, right? Because the, you know, the difference is, I mean, this is a longer conversation, but, you know, crim criminal attorneys, you know, they want to wipe records clean for their clients. They want to avoid jail time for their clients, et cetera, right? They mm -hmm. want to minimize that harsh effect. Immigration lawyers look at criminal consequences a little bit differently uh, because something that saves jail time doesn't necessarily help for purposes of immigration. You know, the, mm. the definition of what a conviction is is very different in, an, in a criminal context versus an immigration context. And so that's kind of like brief aside. If you have any criminal issue you want and, and you are a foreign national, you also want to be talking to an immigration lawyer. Right. To, to really, yeah. you know, discuss what the immigration consequences might be. But an expunged record does not necessarily wipe, in fact, it, it often doesn't, wipe things clean from an immigration standpoint. Mm. And that information still needs to be disclosed on immigration petitions. Mm -hmm. So what if you have not retained a copy of that and now the record is expunged and you have no means to acquire mm. that criminal record? It's a huge problem, it's a huge yeah. problem. So that's, you know, you want to keep those police reports, court records, anything, uh, you know, uh, anything related to that, to that criminal history. You want to hold on to school transcripts and uh, degrees, which are relevant in a number of contexts, particularly for employment-based uh, processes. And um, birth certificates, you mm. want to have your birth certificate or alternative proof of, of, birth, of birth. Like um, it depends honestly on Department of State uh, visa reciprocity tables, which dictate what the US government will accept mm. in terms of birth certificates, in terms of alternative proof. But like family registers or similar documents. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, like that's for like, like China, for example. Yeah, family register, household register, um, you know, sometimes affidavits from parents might be mm -hmm. acceptable, sometimes um, secondary school documentation uh, could, could be used, but, you know, you just want to have, you want to have all of that. Um, that's especially relevant for green card processes. Okay. Where you have to provide okay. uh, the birth certificate. Wow. So the, the list of documents gets longer and longer. Um, and let me introduce just briefly another kind of twist in this discussion, and that is, you know, we're now able to issue and sign I-20s for our F-1 students electronically. And there are a growing number of immigration applications, such as now OPT and STEM OPT, that can be filed electronically with USCIS. So I'm interested to know what impact you think those developments will have on keeping personal records of, of one's immigration documents. Yeah, um, it's an interesting question, Audra. I mean, I, I would say at first, you know, the first thing I think of is it's a it has a very positive impact 
in terms of reducing burden and expenses that are placed on schools and applicants and employers. Um, I, I think that you know it's a great development altogether to for USCIS to kind of get with the times, right? And, um, you know, reduce paper submissions. It's you know better for the environment. It's mm-hmm. better for expenses. Um, it is better for efficiency and speed from an agency that has been plagued by back by backlogs, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which they're now diligently trying to to eliminate. Eliminate. I I don't. I only don't want um, individuals to get you know lulled into a false sense uh, of security in that they've uploaded documentation, some of which they may be able to access, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they have that you know great belief that you know, the government has clearly received my petition, mm. my application, because I have, you know, instant notification uh, that it's been uploaded and that it's been received. But, you know, you never know when uh, there can be some kind of glitch that happens right. and something happens with part or all of that documentation mm-hmm. and it is no longer available to anyone. You never know when uh, a government or a third-party database might purge content or maybe mm. might change its purge policy. Okay. So um, the, the important takeaway I have from that is, you know, while it is a fabulous development, you still want to make sure you are keeping your own copies of mm. everything, everything that you submit uh, to the government, um, you know, in a, in a place that's outside of these databases. Yeah. Okay. Well, so I, I I think you've convinced me I should be keeping good records of my immigration documents. Um, so now that now that you've convinced me that I should do this, do you have any tips or recommendations or best practices to share as to how I go about that? Sure. So I mean, the first the first thing is every document you get, you should be checking. You know, particularly immigration documents, right before they're stored. They need to be checked for accuracy mm. and appropriate remediation has to happen if there is anything that is erroneous, right? So like right. with I-20s, you want to make sure that the biographical information is correct, the program of study, degree level, et cetera, that it has appropriate you know, travel endorsements um, as needed. Um, you, want to, you want to store it in a safe place. Um, mm. If you are storing it physically, you know, maybe a safe or a locking file cabinet, um, it, but I also recommend keeping it electronically. Mm-hmm. And if you're only keeping it electronically, keep it in two different places mm-hmm. right? in case yeah. the laptop gets wiped out and you have it in your portable hard drive as well, right? So you just want to keep it in different places. I have some clients that you know we start working with them and we're going to file an H1B. They've been down that road before. They can zip a you know file of like 50 documents to me in a couple of minutes because they've Mm. been diligently keeping those documents the whole time. So it also, it's an efficiency thing as well. Um, So I also would say to keep it as long as you can until, you know, maybe a permanent resident or probably even better until you're a U.S. citizen. Okay. Because I'm thinking about a couple of things that, that come to mind here, right? Um, number one is the individual who has, you know, that J-1 documentation from years ago, and they're applying for a J-1 waiver like decades later, which uh-huh. I've literally had somebody apply for a waiver 
you know, who was a J1 in the 70s. Wow. <laughs> so, um, and also, you know, an individual who has a criminal record, you know, they may think, oh, well, I haven't had any issues with, you know, with, crim you know, any criminal issues or, or um, issues in my petitions or my benefit applications based on my prior criminal history. But, you know, sometimes a criminal record can come back to haunt somebody. Mm, Databases yeah. are becoming much more sophisticated and there is a greater degree of interconnectedness between right. various government databases. So, you know, something that didn't emerge on an FBI background check years ago might now, you know, might mm. today. Mm -hmm. And so again, you know, and some of that, some of that record can, can get expunged later or just through time is just no longer, you know, you just, you can't obtain those original documents or, or copies of those documents. And so you want right. to keep that record as long as you can, maybe even past being a citizen, if you're mm -hmm. thinking about especially some tough criminal issues and things where, you know, there is such a thing as denaturalization proceedings. It's, wow. it's rather rare. It was actually a, a lot more common during the Trump administration, but still rare. Even, mm -hmm. even at that. Um, and so, I mean, if you keep it electronically, I mean, you know, it doesn't take up a lot of room right, to, right. to have access to that and, and to hold on to it. So those are just my, my thoughts there. Okay. Well, wow. This is, this is great, Adam. Thank you so much. So um, as we wrap up, is there any other information or any other last comments you'd like to share with our listeners, things you think they should know? Sure. Um, just probably just a couple of, of added points, I would say. You know, one thing is to make sure that you keep your documents um, up to date, right? Mm -hmm. So you work with Audra, you know, you work with students, student and scholars, International Student and Scholars Office, you work with your employer before changes occur, um, and, and that you, um, you know, you're just keeping things updated, right? So like, let's say in the I-20, DS 2019 context, uh, will you finish your program of study by the program end date? Uh, if not, you need to extend prior to that expiration date, right? Otherwise, it may become a reinstatement, an F1 reinstatement case, mm -hmm. um, you know, which takes a very long time. Sometimes there may even be a need to shorten the program, um, you know, if you shorten the record um, if, if somebody finishes earlier than expected. Uh, are there any legal name changes, citizenship changes, address changes, which are incumbent on the student, you know, to report to the designated school official? Um, you know, will the, will the academic program change? Will the degree level change? And I'll say in the employment-based, you know, I, I single out H-1Bs, but really it applies to almost all non-immigrant categories, you know, especially employment-based categories. Um, are there any material changes? Is there, is there a position change? Is there a location mm -hmm. change? Is there an employer change, employing entity change? Um, these are things that you want to make sure that you're not just tucking these immigration documents away, but you, you must be your own best advocate. Mm -hmm. And if you think that there is some type of material change, you want to make sure to reach out to your attorney. By the way, um, if you travel and you get a new I-94, if you're working with an attorney, with a university, you need to make sure they see that I-94, mm. that they're aware of your recent travels. Right. Um, if you lose your I-20 or your DS-2019, often you can get that from your university. There are also ways to get uh, duplicate petition approvals, uh, replacement I-94s from the government as well. 
know, last, the last uh, public service announcement I put out there, Ultra, is social security cards. Hmm. Don't keep them in your wallet. Don't <sighs> provide them, circulate them around to everyone right. unless you are required to do so. I think a lot of uh, a lot of you know international students, international employees, they don't realize how important and sensitive mm. the social security number is. Right. It, it, um, you don't want to be careless with who you are circulating it to. It is very easy um, for that to be used for identity fraud. Mm. And so I tell people, and I personally do not keep social security card in my wallet. I right. keep it in a safe at my house. And so, um, and, and I can't think of any immigration benefits unless you are providing it for your, you know, for your I-9 employment eligibility verification. You know, it, it's not common that that social security number uh, would, be, would be required in right. most places. Yeah. All right. That is great advice. And and thank you so much, Adam. This has been so informative and so helpful. I think this will be very, very good information for our listeners. And I want to just, again, thank you for sharing your time with us today. And, and uh, again, the book is the Academic Immigration Handbook, and I will put a link to that in the show notes, as well as a link to your firm, Siskin Susser. Um, and we hope that you all have a wonderful rest of your summer. Thank you for joining us on International and NWA again. Until next time, take care. Thank you. International and NWA is an educational and informational program of the Office of International Students and Scholars at the University of Arkansas. Nothing in this podcast is to be interpreted as legal advice. If you are in need of legal advice, you should consult a qualified attorney. While every effort is made to ensure that information is accurate at the time of publication, regulations are subject to change. <laughs>